University of Chicago Public Policy Podcast. I have therefore considered it essential to relieve General MacArthur so that there would be no doubt or confusion as to the real purpose and aim of our policy. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence by the military-industrial complex. U.S. warships and planes launched the opening salvo of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After years of devastating cuts, we're now rebuilding our military like we never have before. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Thank You for Your Service, a hard look at American civil military affairs from the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Sarah Claudie. This episode is part two of a conversation we had with Dr. Ronald Krebs and Mr. Robert Ralston of the University of Minnesota. If you haven't listened to part one, Make sure to go back and do that first. Last time, we talked about the classic theory of civil-military relations and the American public's deference to military leadership. Keep listening to hear Dr. Krebs and Mr. Ralston dissect these topics even further. One thing that's come up a lot in our research for this podcast is the idea of ritualistic salutes to heroes or patriotic displays for the military in professional sports and movies been on public holidays. Um, what are your thoughts on how that phenomenon kind of speaks to this whole idea of civilian opinion of the military and the current state of civil military relations? Well, what I would say is that is exactly, that is the um, popular analog to this elite emphasis on soldiering uh, as a paragon, soldiers as paragons of citizenship. Right, those ritualistic salutes to heroes, it should be noted at least there is uh, anecdotal evidence that veterans themselves really don't like it because it seems like a common, what a uh, great sociologist Michael Mann called spectator sport militarism. It allows people to feel like they are in fact supportive of the military when they have no real understanding of what goes on in the military and what it is to be in the military. But from our perspective, what's really dangerous about it is that it promotes hero worship. It promotes a set of stereotypes of the military that there is no way that our mil members of the military can live up to. Uh, and it uh, encourages this popular deference to the military, the sense that uh, America's soldiers are like other Americans, just a whole lot better. And that's not a productive from the, per and, uh, from the perspective of civil military relations. So to get this right, your research seems to suggest that Americans in general don't recognize or don't internalize their responsibilities to provide civilian oversight of the military. Um, I'm curious, was there ever an era in our history when Americans really did do that? Is it necessary for a functioning democracy for Americans to do that? Um, and if they ever have, um, how did our country benefit from that? Um, I'll, I'll say a few words and then I'll turn it over to uh, to Robert. We we don't know if the mass of Americans really ever took that seriously. What is disturbing to us is are our elected representatives taking their oversight of the military seriously? Part of what inspired this research, from my perspective, the the event that really struck me was when David Petraeus, then the uh, general in charge of Central Command, came to Washington and 
it was watching a series of a series of softball questions coming out of congressional committees that were supposed to conduct oversight. I don't know if the mass of Americans have ever taken that responsibility seriously, but once upon a time, our Congress people did. Uh, and we do see a, uh, you know, right, we have fewer veterans serving in Congress than at any time in the last 60 years since the end of the Second World War. And there is, does seem to be at least a sense that the, uh, our Congress people who do not have not themselves had military service, who themselves have grown up in an environment, right? Most of them at this point are younger people. That is, if you are anything under, if you are anyone uh, under the age of 45, you have never known anything other than the L volunteer force and never known anything other than uh, a, this um, ritualistic salutes to heroes that you referenced earlier. This, uh, uh, and so we are not getting that kind of oversight out of Congress. And that is the part that is disturbing and, uh, and I think does not bode well for American civil-military relations. And the one thing that I would add to that is you know, just in today's politics uh, with the Trump administration, you see uh, Trump being very deferential even in his rhetoric to the generals, my generals. Um, and this only, I think, compounds this, I, this, this problem that the, the president himself seems uh, quite deferential to uh, pe people like General Mattis, the outgoing General Kelly, and uh, General McMaster. And there was a lot of hair-pulling when these folks were initially put into place because uh, this sort of violated the norms of traditional gaps between the military and cabinet posts, right? And... Yet, you didn't really see much of this being discussed on, for example, CNN or Fox News, right? This was a much more a sort of insular conversation among people that were sort of national security experts. And I think the general tendency of someone like Trump to at least pay lip service to the military sort of exacerbates some of these problems of, um, in, in his own way, sort of this armchair militarism that he has as well as someone who had did not serve. Um, and unlike, for example, uh, the recent passing of George H.W. Bush and the sort of stark contrast between uh, their own history of service as well. Yeah. The, the important point, I think, to keep in mind is that it is, again, it's not clear that U.S. military policy is systematically better when civilians are conducting careful oversight or not. But we don't, because we don't actually have a way to answer that question. How would we know what a better military policy would be? How do we know what results are better for the nation? There's no way to answer that question without a deeper theory of democracy. And so the virtues of civil military relations cannot be weighed by asking at the end of the day, um, are fewer Americans dying on the battlefield? Are our military operations being better designed? Ultimately, it's rooted in our faith and belief in the virtues of democracy, that ultimately it is civilians who are accountable to the populace, to the sovereign, because the people are sovereign, that it is civilians who have the right to be wrong. Now, that is the fundamental tenet of democratic civil-military relations. Look, you know, all of us uh, have come of age to some extent. Robert, uh, I referenced the fall of the Berlin Wall. Robert referenced... 9-11. And of course, 9-11 was a pretty big moment for me as well. I was just at the tail end of finishing up my dissertation at that time. 
The lesson of the decade after that was that civilians have the right to be wrong, and when they are wrong, as they were over Iraq, watch out. When they're wrong, watch out. But at the end of the day, civilians have the right to be wrong. If that is not the case, then we do not have a democracy. All right, Dr. Krebs, um, Mr. Ralston, I have this question. Do military leaders recognize the amount of trust the public has in them? And is there any evidence that they're taking that for granted? Uh, I think we, uh, I think that it's clear. It's clear that the American, we know this from speeches and so on, that they, they do understand and they see those regular Gallup polls regarding trust in institutions. Um, and I think it's very clear, you know, the military leaders that I have interacted with, that is sort of the officers from colonel and above, they, they take that responsibility very seriously. But uh, I do begin to worry that uh, they, you know, when based on our polling data with respect to veterans, I do begin to worry that uh, those, that they not only do Americans come to see them as somehow better Americans, but they will come to see themselves as better Americans. And therefore, will trust their own judgment over that of civilians, that they will not come to see the civilians have the right to be wrong. That is, uh, I think, sort of something that is of concern. I'm not worried that we're going to see an obvious coup in this country. That's not what the fear is. But there is a, we, there is a tremendous influence that all bureaucrats, and especially in the military arena, especially when you don't have veterans themselves serving in positions of authority, that the military can, have, can shape the decision-making process by setting the agenda. That if they themselves decide, you know what, we're only going to present two options, and they are both options that fall in the realm of what we deem acceptable, we're not going to present the options to civilians that we don't deem acceptable, but they might want and that are consistent with their priorities. That's of concern. So there are lots of ways that military officers who trust their own judgment can jimmy the process in a way that is going to allow it to produce results that they want to see. Dr. Krebs, you've done a lot of work in the area of narrative and national security policy and how rhetoric shapes that. We were wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that research and more specifically, how can Americans look out for um, rhetorical trends or techniques when they hear um, debates about national security policy in the public square? Sure. We often tend to think that national security questions, what we call the arena of high politics, is an arena in which things like rhetoric and culture don't really matter a great deal. And what I've tried to show in my research is that that is not the case. The book I published in 2015 on narrative in the making of U.S. national security traced and sought to explain the rise and fall of the dominant narratives that shape our debates over national security policy. We cannot have conversations and meaningful debates, even the most wonkish of debates, are rooted, I argue, in a set of narrative presuppositions, a set of stories we tell ourselves about the world, and about our country's place in that world. And those stories themselves have a deep impact on what kinds of arguments are sustainable and what kind of arguments we deem to be illegitimate or beyond the pale. And so my research has tried to understand 
how it is that those certain kinds of arguments have become dominant and how some arguments have fall that used to be dominant no longer come to be dominant. And the story and the, the argument that I make is rooted in the role of elite rhetoric and the responsibility that elites play for shaping those dominant narratives. And that provides the tie-in to the work that Robert and I uh, and our colleague Aaron Rappert at the University of Cambridge in England that we have been doing. Because this is really, a, uh, the account that we're offering is one about the cultural politics of military service. That we have a particular dominant narrative of what it means to be a soldier that we are showing in this research deeply shapes how it is that Americans think about soldiering and military service, and uh, as well more broadly, about how they think about how sensitive they are to casualties, how favorable they are to military missions. Uh, and the sort of, that is the, the, sort of the link between those two elements of research. Mi the military institution has always been, if you will, a cultural matrix. It becomes this, um, screen onto which we project our national values in the West. And that goes back to ancient Greece, and that continues to be the case today. So the military is not just an institution for the application of force. It is also this flashpoint in our culture, which is why when I was coming of age in the early 1990s, that big flashpoint was gays in the military, right? This, the debates over don't ask, don't tell, and that's continued to be the case in the last quarter century has been about the military as this flashpoint in our national culture and will continue to be so. All right. Um, so we have a lot of classmates here at the Harris School of Public Policy who are going to go into careers that have nothing to do with national security policy per se um, or defense. But summarizing from what we've been talking about, they have a responsibility to to kind of learn about and engage with these kinds of issues anyway we were we were wondering if you have any recommendations for people with no military background on how they should do that well i think some methods and resources for people to gain sort of a, a better understanding of national security policy there's lots of resources out there Websites like uh, War on the Rocks, Defense One, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, these provide sort of the a really nice synthesis of a lot of the stuff that's going on in academia as well as the sort of policy debates and the sort of bridge between the two. And something that I'd recommend as a resource to people um, who want to keep abreast of issues is uh, the Texas National Security Review. They do a lot of roundtables that pose big fundamental questions in national security policy from a lot of different angles a lot of different voices and opinions. And in the age of social media, uh, I'd also encourage people to engage on Twitter because there's a lot of really uh, great national security practitioners, academics, that even just following their feed and engaging in the conversation gives you a chance to feel sort of the pulse of the national security community, albeit maybe a select group of them. And to keep a breast of sort of the current debates in the field. And I think that's a really easy way to kind of uh, keep informed as well as to sort of gain knowledge in this field. I would just add uh, to what Robert had to say that, um, you know, one of the great 
challenges and failings of democracy in practice is the extent we know from tons of polling data and the friends that we all talk to is people's desire and willingness to put in the work and to pay the cost that it takes to be an informed citizen. It is unrealistic to think that every American will gain the knowledge they need to be an informed citizen in national security affairs. So what I would say the challenge is I would love to see every one of your colleagues at the Harris School and every American take on two, three, four, five issues that they are going to follow really intensely and really carefully and make themselves informed about that and then take on the responsibility to inform their friends who don't care a great deal about that issue and share with them what they've learned. That is what will sustain American democracy. One piece of advice that I would give people is, and this applies in national security affairs, but also in general, is to read op-eds and to listen to the kinds of things they hear on TV in a more sophisticated way. 99% of what you hear amongst the talking heads and what you read in op-eds on websites will present only one side of a story, will almost never acknowledge counter-arguments, and will generally argue for the benefits of policy without acknowledging the costs of policy. But the fact is that almost, that almost all important policy questions are dilemmas, that we can rarely advance one value without it coming at the cost of something else that we value. All policies involve costs. We may think that the, benef the net benefits exceed the costs, but they all come at costs. And so I would like all of our listeners to be really attentive to ask themselves when they read that op-ed or listen to a talking head on television, what's the best argument to the contrary? And what are the costs of this policy that they're not telling me? And then be attentive to that uh, and keep that in mind. Because uh, you know this is why we're in this world where we're all simply, people are screaming at each other and talking over each other and talking and often at cross purposes with each other. And if we all sort of paid a little more attention to the fact that almost every serious policy question has a serious counter argument and has serious costs associated with it, I think we'd have a much more rational and meaningful public debate. Dr. Krebs and Mr. Ralston, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks thank for you having so much us. for inviting us. Thanks for joining us for part two of this conversation with Dr. Ronald Krebs and Mr. Robert Ralston. You can find the link to their original foreign policy article in the show notes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-Y-F-Y-S underscore podcast to get the latest updates about the show. Also, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Spreaker so you'll get our next episode as soon as it's released. Thank You For Your Service is produced by Nick Perezo, Haziano, and Alec McMillan. Special thanks to Ashwarya Kumar and Mary Martha McClay for production and scripting support. This podcast is a production of the University of Chicago Public Policy Podcasts and is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of Defense or any other military entity. I'm Thomas Krasnation. And I'm Sarah Claudie. See you next time. As China's role grows greater on the global stage, you want to stay up to date on the issues most pressing to China both domestically 
and internationally. Check out the Just China podcast for in-depth analysis on recent headlines and investigative reports on Chinese matters that affect our globalized world. We are Just China. Find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening.